The first hour and seven minutes of Oppenheimer. I've been holding off seeing Nolan's film as the UK has been under an unusual blanket of clouds for the past six weeks. Europe is currently experiencing a life-threatening heatwave due to climate change and it has pushed all the moisture outwards. This has meant I've been under the lens of a hellish level of high and low pressure shifts. This makes the average person bemoan the changeable weather as it switches from sunny to rainy to overcast to close and muggy to rainy again and then sunny in the space of an hour, but inside my ridiculously oversensitive frame it's like being punched in the head over and over again all day. I have had one single migraine since the end of June. It is now mid-August and I am going insane. In the past, when describing British weather to Sharon, I've likened it to being in the position of a small defenseless child stuck in a house with a bipolar and abusive parent. Watching them seem calm in the early morning but get increasingly stormy by lunchtime until it's the afternoon and then suddenly they start screaming and lashing out. I spend my time waiting for the shoe to drop, the bomb to fall, the sword of Damocles to make a beeline for my head and my right eye. In recent weeks the intensity grew suddenly so much more potent that on two occasions I have been under the impression I might be having an embolism or an aneurysm and that I might in fact be dying. One of these times was waking up at 4am in a cold sweat, the other while making love to Sharon. This is manifestly oversharing, but I am trying to convey to you, dear listener, how much a place of joy can suddenly become a place of sudden terror, and how unsettling this is for me. Both occasions were when I was trying a new medication which actually made the symptoms worse, so before you start emailing me to advise me to see a doctor, we are trying to do something about this. We have been for years. What frightens me is how little headway we have made and how much that pain can become the ruler of my life. I can't write. I have three books on the go and I often cannot get my head into anywhere near a creative enough space to think lyrically the way I write at my best. Now the weather isn't an abusive parent, it's an MMA fighter stalking the outside of the ring and busting in on a daily basis to get me on the ground, pin my arms and start beating on my face. Only contextually the ring isn't the octagon, it's just my office with just my computer in it. This has spiked my depression, something which has affected me for my entire life. Only as a child, I couldn't comprehend it and my father saw seeking therapy as acceptance that you were broken, defeated. No use to anyone. I couldn't write due to anxiety throughout 2020. Covid and its effects on the world was overwhelming me. I was terrified Donald Trump was going to instigate martial law and an uprising of his gun-nut base the moment the federal agents justifiably came for this criminal squatting in the White House. I feared, dreamt, obsessed over imagery straight out of the Purge films. A blunt mirror held up to the ugliest side of America, insane people armed to the teeth through ostensible legal documentation. 
for the purposes of an armed uprising to remove tyrants from the White House. And in a supreme irony, they would be activated by this very tyrant in defense of tyranny, murdering liberals in the name of a pure America. Then Trump lost the election and the results were the Capitol riots. And suddenly I could write again. I wrote four books in six months and immediately afterwards, after all my soul and energy had gone into arguably the best work I had ever crafted, depression came to fill the void. I had been on a high, now I was on a low. I had thoughts of suicide to escape this series of traps within traps that surrounded me, this Iron Maiden Russian doll of opposing force that kept me in stasis. I started taking sertraline for that depression. My coping mechanisms came back, even though the situation remained the same. This is chemical. This is why when people say, just quit taking meds, Based on anecdotal experience of an entirely different situation, this could be very dangerous advice. But I still cannot write. Not books. Not yet. And I'm not sure what has to give. During that time when we were all locked inside, Christopher Nolan was at war with Warner Brothers. He wanted his new film, Tenet, to be launched in the cinema, to insist that everybody go and see it in the cinema and pay for the danger that they would all be placing themselves in, along with their extended families and friends in their bubble. Clearly it wasn't just to get his film seen safely, or for it to take only a fraction of the 2019 projected box office sales, because otherwise it would have launched on HBO Max and it would have been the same failure as Wonder Woman 1984, but people would have seen it in safety. This conflict caused a rift between Nolan and Warner Brothers, for whom he had been the golden boy since Batman Begins in 2005, the classy, talented, sophisticated, well-read English posh director, successor to Kubrick and Ridley Scott, the man who brought the world the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception and Interstellar. So when it came to his Oppenheimer biopic, he split and deliberately went to the other big studio that wasn't Disney, the ones that would give him the power, Universal, with another summer blockbuster spot planned. Warner Brothers, in a retaliatory move so petty it may as well be in one of their movies, planned their launch date for Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie on the same day. They knew it was going to be big, Lego movie big, and very much the pastel and fuchsia pink polar opposite of this big, important man film about big, important men talking intensely in rooms as they conjured the atomic bomb. Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? Warner Brothers knew there would be an online manosphere backlash against Barbie and that it might even make Nolan's film less popular because of how obnoxiously misogynistic it would get. People who weren't invested in the suppression of any kind of spotlight on women might not want to be associated with that crowd. 
it was calculated. But they knew there was a risk too. That Barbie would be a laughable dated mess, that Gerwig would overreach and wind up with a critical bomb despite any takings it might get. That Mattel would take their business elsewhere next time, and in a summer that turned out to be a gridlock of blockbusters launched opposite one another, nearly all of them suffered from lower takings than expected. They could wind up with a colossal flop with Barbie that made women angry at them somehow. This was a risky shot, powered by resentment, fear, and imagined nightmares of disaster. You see where I'm going with this. Here's a bit from later in this podcast. My favourite moment in the film, Oppenheimer, is just after the great Florence Pugh has gone to his bookshelf partway through sexual congress with him and retrieved a book with a passage in Sanskrit. She mounts him once more and asks him to read to her. He begins in the original language, and as she manually adjusts his tumescent, quivering member, this is a bit from still later in the podcast, but I'm putting it in the middle of this other fragment. David Cromaltz, the man who plays Michael from 10 Things I Hate About You, is in this film. He is a Jewish physicist named Isidore Isaac Rabbi, who does not want to work on the Manhattan Project. He doesn't want three centuries of cumulative, brilliant physics to result in a weapon of mass destruction. Back to Oppenheimer's John Thomas, which Florence Pugh's Jean Tatlock was digitally manipulating into her lower Venusian furrowed plough. She gets J. Robert Oppenheimer to read the Sanskrit in English, and he says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That gets her extremely horny. Cut to New Mexico and J. Robert is making his way up a stormy hillside with two friends. They are on horseback, so they are horsemen, but there are of course only three of them. However, they do have a fourth horse that is apparently riderless. It is a pale horse. I held back on seeing Oppenheimer because I wasn't in the mood for it. I was suffering from daily agony and depression, and it wasn't just me. Sharon caught COVID at the end of June, just as this weather was beginning. Two weeks of sleeping or trying to sleep on the couch, putting everything else aside, tending to Sharon, never being able to breathe the same air, looking after Willow, keeping myself in a state of cat-like readiness, going a little bit insane, but not allowing myself to break down because who else would hold things together? Last week, Willow confided in us how deeply depressed they themselves had become. Things got very dark. Sharon and I tried extremely hard to maintain being secure rocks for the child to cling to amid the buffeting gale, but I know I will never be the same again. Willow is doing better now, thanks Sharon. Oppenheimer is the most Christopher Nolan of all Christopher Nolan films. It has a similar reordered placement of different time frame threads as Dunkirk, a film I re-edited in chronological order to show Sharon. That way she would get the story of the men in the boats for several days 
headed up by the strong but slight Mark Rylance. Then the men stuck on the beach for several hours, led by the other boy, Harry Styles. And finally, Tom Hardy in a Spitfire in the air for several minutes. This narrative organization impressed the showrunner for The Witcher, Schmidt Hisrick, and Schmidt utilized it to tell the stories of Geralt, Yennefer, and Ciri, separated by distance and decades, to weave a story of three lonely people looking for a family. I'm going to re-edit that first season too. It's not that I don't like reorganized editorial. I was initially impressed by 21 Grams in 2003, told in non-linear, seemingly randomized fashion by Alejandro Gonzalo Iñatru. One of my first indie films, The Diary, took a similar approach, and it is amusing, self-serious piffle. Most recently, maybe the best thing I will ever write, Panther Soul tells you a linear story with flashbacks that fill in different moments in the hero's life, told deliberately out of order, as each moment that makes him who he is comes to bear on a different part of the story. It is yesterday. So begins the fifth of my lives. My mastery of words is growing and the other cats barely stand a chance. They are conditioned to pound flesh with their heavy paws, but do as they are told. Be blunt instruments. Before each fight, I am a waterfall of entertaining braggadocio. I tell the crowd how I will battle my opponent. I specify moments to watch out for. I make my pledge like a magician. I ensure their eyes are on both of us, attentions riveted. In the ring, I am a wildfire, dancing around my foe. They know the audience are here to see me. Their spirit fights against their own insecurity. And as of today, I've decided to make a linear version of that too for clarity. Because I also love making lists of things that happened in a knock-on fashion. We are engaged in a project with Willow taking them through human history in film, starting with Quest for Fire by Jean-Jacques Anou, set 80,000 BC with a Neanderthal Ron Perlman and leading all the way up to 1917, directed by Sam Mendes, and then a decade-by-decade micro-series covering the ever-changing 20th century. So that when we say, what decade do you think this is? When we point to something, Will won't just guess and go, oh, I don't know, 70s? No, that's 1930s but it was made in the 70s. Well done. My boxed Blu-rays are organized across 15 shelves of 50 films in order of theatrical release, starting with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937 on the far left of the first shelf and currently culminating in Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, one of the year's best films that nobody saw on the far right of the lowest shelf. It's this stacking of knock-on effects that allows me to get the perspective I need to do this show, to write an alternate history. I can jump forwards and backwards in time because at least I already have the stacked data of what happened when. Barbenheimer was not planned. No studio could expect the memes to start flooding in, but when they did, the juxtaposition of the super serious burning orange of Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer posters blended with the hot pink pizzazz of Margot Robbie's seemingly carefree and party-hungry Barbie with an inherent absurdity. I like these memes. 
They stated, actually we are tired of the false dichotomy we keep having to suffer through as film types opine on highbrow and low entertainment. We're going to see them both, and for many, performatively on the same day. Mixing single malt whiskey that tastes like a delicious house fire, mixed with strawberry milkshake that tastes of cold fear and anxiety and existential depression. Warner Brothers could not have planned this better if they'd actually planned it. In fact, if they'd planned to mix Barbenheimer together, it would have been seen as crass glib marketing, especially in Japan where they had to apologize for some of the retweeting they did. Both films did indeed turn out to be good and achieved colossal numbers, in part due to the online excitement hitting the news where the regular people could see it. For perspective, one of our friends doesn't know what Oppenheimer is, and conversely, my mum now does. But some of Sharon's work colleagues didn't know Elon Musk had bought Twitter and were asking what X was and why they were now being asked to pay. Normal people do not obsess about these things. I am abnormal. Oppenheimer 2023 is arrayed like the thoughts of Dr. Manhattan. This magic trick stopped working on me the second time I watched Inception and found the vast proportion of it to be explaining its own mechanics, which to me raised further questions regarding how any of it could be timed precisely on the outside. Selling Nolan films as, if you can keep up with this editing style as information is fed to you in morsels, then you are clever, is now grating to me. One hour in, to this film, Michael from 10 Things About You says that he doesn't want to help with making a machine that can destroy the world. Oppenheimer confides in him that he doesn't know if America can be trusted with this power, but he knows that the Nazis cannot be trusted with this power. And on that simplified conjuncture, I cannot fault his logic, and neither can his friend because it convinces him. But I caught on a snag, and seven minutes later, someone holds up a piece of paper that made me change my adjusted plan, which was to walk out at the halfway mark and come back tomorrow for the rest so that I could give myself a break from boredom and frustration and a surprising amount of cold where I was sat in shirt sleeves, breathing on my chest, my arms would take care of themselves. I wasn't enjoying it and I hadn't expected to, but I also wasn't engaging with it. And my reasons for leaving, illuminated why. I walked out there at one hour and seven minutes as the person came in with the piece of paper. Because up until that point, I was wondering if this was indeed a foot chase, as Oppenheimer describes it, begun in earnest in the 1930s with Germany two years ahead of America, and that Oppenheimer and company, all those gray men in gray suits talking intensely in gray rooms, if they had to cross the finish line, First, what would that finish entail? Germany were hamstrung in the end by prejudice, anti-Semitism. They won't work with Jewish scientists and they overlooked a lot of men who could have helped them and a lot of men who may have rationalized that they were, by winning this race, beating the psychopathic murderous bullies rounding their people up into death camps. Again, I cannot fault that emotional logic. But again, if they had to cross the finish line, what does that finish 
Entail? Really? I knew the answer already. Pearl Harbor. Retaliation. Show of strength. Atrocity. Hiroshima. Nagasaki. The horror. The existential dread. The end of the war. But only with Japan. Germany went on undeterred and failed for a number of reasons that irked the character Mads Mikkelsen played in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. They lasted for one more month. But when Hitler fell apart in that bunker, ranting all the way, it was not out of fear for his motherland and that the German people would be destroyed in nuclear fire. He saw everyone as traitors and weaklings at this point. And then... The Cold War. Pointing our bombs at Russia them pointing their bombs back. The remainder of the 20th century, living under the shadow of the bomb, duck and cover, the dread, the soaking dread, the world over. Nuclear proliferation, the arms race, increasing military budgets to spend on more and more nuclear warheads, stockpiling them even though America and Russia now had enough nuclear material to devastate the world to zero life eight or nine times over but they would never need to get to even time number two because we would all be dead. Mutually assured destruction kept us alive. A half-life. Improperly stored nuclear devices. Impossible to dispose of all of them safely. There is no Superman. This is not the quest for peace or the comic book Rising Stars by J. Michael Straczynski. The ghost of the Cold War in the 21st century a Russian leader deluding himself that these could be the good old days again, forcing a war with the Ukraine just to make his mark on the world. All of us worried forever. The planet burning up because we had allowed ourselves to give in to the instinct to chase power, the acquisition of which was the true government motivation behind the Manhattan Project. But let's rewind 85 years. America discovers that the Nazis are working towards nuclear power. America decides nobody, literally nobody, should have that power. America ups their spy game. They find where the Germans are doing their work. Everybody on that project is killed. The entire facility goes up in flames. All research destroyed. The same happens in Russia. Anywhere that tries to create an atomic bomb. America look at the foot race and decide that with weapons of this magnitude, there will be no winners. Only us, losing again and again. That the soul of the 20th century will be to prevent disaster, not be the ones to obtain the means to applying focused disaster themselves and pointing their doomsday gun at whatever enemies they have or need or make up. The moment I left the cinema was when somebody announced that there was a mole in the American research team. The Manhattan Project had been compromised by spies, and now Russia had the details on how to do this. Sarah Connor's words came back to me. You're judging me on things I haven't even done yet. <laughs> how are we supposed to know? Yeah. Right. How are you supposed to know? 
Men like you built the hydrogen bomb. Men like you thought it up. I think you're so creative. You don't know what it's like to really create something, to create a life. Feel it growing inside you. All you know how to create is death and destruction. Mom! And I left. I went home to my wife, kissed her on the cheek, and I wrote this for all of you. And for me. We must evolve beyond war, or we really are doomed. And whenever anyone tells me war is an inevitability, that conflict is in our nature, I think about all those other apes that have ever lived over millions of years. And though they most definitely fought and hid each other and killed each other and ate each other's faces, they managed to not create the atomic bomb. And I remember that our nature is the lies and truths that we tell ourselves. Before you write in saying, Jesus Christ, Alex, it's summer blockbuster season. This is way too heavy. Remember, Christopher Nolan started it first. And next week we have an incredibly heartwarming film that nobody saw. And if you want to feel a little bit more peaceful about your life, I can thoroughly recommend you see Grigsby Bear. Barbie is amazing, by the way. Sharon's second favorite film of all time. We will do a main event show on it when we have access to the making of materials. Spent 